My name is Annie Grossman and I'm a dog trainer. I'm the owner and co-founder of School for the Dogs, a dog training center located in Manhattan's East Village. On this podcast, I talk about dog training, interview industry experts, discuss pet trends, answer questions, and try to communicate my love for all things related to behavioral science. Thanks a lot for listening. I think this podcast will help make you the best possible human best friend any dog could ask for. Hello, humans. Thank you for listening. Uh, So... If you have been a regular listener over the past few months, you know that I've been digging in a bit to the history of positive reinforcement dog training over the last century or so. Uh, And I, again today, have one of these kind of nerdy, nerdy episodes for you if you listen to this podcast to get tips on training. I promise I will have uh, an episode next week that will be uh, more practical. But today, I'm excited to share with you an interview I did with Dr. Bob Bailey. Over the last few months, I have read uh, some of his writings and some writings of his uh, colleagues. And a couple weeks ago, I hosted a screening of this little-known short film by uh, Dr. Bob Bailey called Patient Like the Chipmunks, which was to be followed by a Q&A with the man himself, but due to some technical difficulties, the Q&A actually did not happen, which... uh, In the end is good news because it means we're doing a second screening of the film tomorrow, March 22nd at 4 p.m. Eastern. This time again to be followed by a Q&A. If everything goes well, you can sign up at schoolforthedogs.com slash Bailey if you are a certified professional dog trainer through the CCPDT, or you are a Karen Pryor Academy certified training partner, you can get CEUs for attending this event. Learn more at that link. I do not believe we are going to be sharing a recording this time, so be there or miss it. It is $10 to attend. All proceeds will go to the Marion Breland Bailey Fund at Henderson State University in Arkansas. If you can't make it but still want to see the video or if you are listening to this at a future date, you can still go to schoolforthedogs.com slash Bailey and you will see there an address to which you can send a paper check for $35.00 to Dr. Bob Bailey himself in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and he will mail you a copy of the DVD. The details are at that link, schoolforthedogs.com slash Bailey. So in advance of tomorrow's screening, I had a conversation with Dr. Bailey, which I'm about to share with you about his career, his work with um, Keller, and Marion Breland, much of which is uh, covered in much more detail in the film. Just some chronology that might be useful before listening to this recording, although if you've seen the film already, it'll be clear. But um, Dr. Bailey uh, joined Marion, then known as Marion Breland, and Keller Breland uh, working for their company, Animal Behavior Enterprises. Actually, I should say he was hired by um, them uh, 
to work for Animal Behavior Enterprises, which was uh, a really amazing company that um, did a lot of things, including putting these like uh, dioramas, sort of live dioramas with li live animals uh, in amusement parks and arcades and in other kinds of places throughout the world. Um, they also provided animals for um, for the military, for lots of different commercial purposes. But I I love these dioramas because they really are kind of like Skinner boxes where the animals um, perform nifty feats. They even at one point created like a whole amusement park of animals trained to do spectacular things. It was called IQ Zoo. In the show notes, I'll put a link to um, a web page maintained by the University of Central Arkansas where you can see photos of some of these amazing displays. Just to clear up what can be a little bit confusing about some of the names you are going to hear and the chronology, Marion and Keller Breland were graduate students uh, studying under B.F. Skinner at the University of Minnesota in the late 1930s and early 1940s and were really the first to take what was going on in his lab and apply it to um, working with animals outside of a, a research setting. Their business is what came to be known as Animal Behavior Enterprises and in the 1960s they uh, met up with Bob Bailey, brought him on to work at Animal Behavior Enterprises, but between the time that he was hired and that he started, Keller Breland died, and Bob Bailey would actually go on to marry Marion, who then became Marion Breland Bailey, and they worked closely together until her death in 2001. Uh, he does explain some of this in this conversation, but just wanted to clarify that. Do see the show notes for more information, and I hope to see some of you tomorrow at this screening, which will be followed by a Q&A with the man himself. So make sure to have your questions ready. Hello. Hi there. Says it's recording. There we are. You see me? Yeah, I see you. I see your little dog in the background. Yeah. What, what kind is he? That's Poppy. She's like a nine-month-old Chihuahua mix. Very, yeah. very sweet. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Do you have any dogs these days? Uh, no, I have never owned a dog before in my entire life. Stop it! Really? Absolutely. Have but you've had you've had some pets, I'm guessing uh no not really <laughs> my kids have had lots of pets uh my mother did not like animals okay and uh, she hated dogs and her reason was is they lick their butts and then they lick your face and uh, fair enough <laughs> it was uh simplicity personified no we my father tried to have a, a hunting dog and uh that didn't last but a few months and now, then dad, dad got rid of the dog huh well uh, this brings me to one of the questions i wanted to ask you but first i i just wanted to um as i'm recording this for the podcast i wanted to uh ask if maybe you could introduce yourself and then we'll go from there okay uh before i i do that i, I should say that uh my house was always filled with animals. I didn't call them pets. I collected animals out in the desert and I had cages, call them cages. Some of them were pretty elaborate structures uh, in my bedroom uh -huh. when I was growing up. And mom allowed that, but they were not pets. They were kangaroo rats and uh, wood rats and lizards and snakes and all sorts of things like that but I would keep them for a month or two and then turn them loose. And were so, you were you 
examining them, observing their behavior oh, oh yeah. at a young uh, yeah. age? Oh yeah, I watched them, I fed them, I did things like that. And so, where and uh, where did you grow up? Uh, in Van Nuys, California. I'm originally from Ohio. Huh, okay. So uh, let's see, um, I'm Dr. Robert E. Bailey. Um, and uh, right now I reside in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and I've been here since 1965. Mm -hmm. uh, let's see, I attended UCLA and well, I grew up in Van Nuys, so I went to Van Nuys High School and then I went to UCLA and then I took some graduate work in uh, Berkeley and then I... Uh, um, I actually taught at uh, University of Central Arkansas, and it's from University of Central Arkansas that I got my uh, doctorate. And let's see, uh, what else? Uh, um, well, I know on, on your bio and your site, you refer to yourself as as um, a, a inventor, designer, writer, teacher, diver, photographer, and video editor. Yeah, I've done all of them. I think you've uh, left some things out there though. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, I've, I've done some other things, uh, but uh, I, I guess the main thing is, uh, and what people know me for is some people would call it bioengineering, um, that uh, I don't know if I'm a behaviorist uh, in that uh, I've taken some psychology classes, but my degree is not in, in in uh, particularly uh, uh, behavior, animal behavior. Um, it's in physics, chemistry, and biology. Uh -huh. uh, but I guess uh, I like to make things work. Uh -huh. That's what I like to do. Uh, I design things, I build things. Um, I have to also say that I was a businessman in the old days. So for some 30 years that I ran a uh, company of, uh, well, during the summertime, about 100 people. So uh, again, I'm a businessman. Um, <laughs> I, I wrote lots of checks to, to people, lots of payroll checks. Well, and an animal trainer that's left off of your list here. Yeah, I, I'm an animal trainer, and I made sure that even while I was running a company, I always blocked out time where I could work with, particularly with new animals. Uh -huh. um, it was uh, always an advantage on my part, since I essentially owned the company, that when we got in new animals to do new things, uh, I could choose or not uh, to be working with those. And uh, that was an advantage on my part. So I got to work with a lot of new animals doing new things. So I'd like to, I'd like to talk in depth about Animal Behavior Enterprises, which <clears throat> was your business or, or one of your businesses. But, mm -hmm. but before we go into that, tell me a little bit how you got interested in, in training to begin with and how you ended up um, hooking up with uh, Marion and Keller, and and then of course mm -hmm. I guess we can introduce who, who who they were. But was it was it those uh, was it those animals in your childhood bedroom that turned you on to to, to behavior or something? Well, the first time, and I've described this uh, I guess a couple of years ago, and um, and I don't even remember the uh, name of the uh, presentation that I was making at the time. But as a five year old. Uh, I played with ants and I found that I could change the behavior of ants. Now, my mother recalls my doing this uh, and she thought I was out there just killing ants, just a kid lying on the cement out in front of the house, uh, drawing his finger uh, across the concrete. Well, she thought I was killing ants, but what I was doing I know now is leaving an odor trail that uh, actually affected the ants. They could no longer detect or they didn't want to cross my odor trail. So they went around. So I started drawing designs and I would have ants marching all over the front stoop of my uh, house. This was in um, uh, Michigan. Uh, 
And uh, say, my mother mistook it for something else, uh, <laughs> but but I vaguely remember doing it, and I found it interesting. Uh, I then discovered science when my folks bought a set of encyclopedias, word book encyclopedias. And between the ages of about five and nine, I read the entire encyclopedia. Um, and in that I found about chemistry and physics and you know all sorts of astronomy in particular. I was always interested in astronomy. Uh-huh. So uh, uh, you might say that uh, the beginnings, my observational uh, studies began at a very tender age, uh, but I was always interested in what made things work. So you, when you went to work uh, professionally with animals, how did, how did that come about? Well, uh, I spent a lot of time in the desert. Um, uh, we moved to the San Fernando Valley in the uh, early 40s. And unlike now, uh, the San Fernando Valley was pretty empty. There weren't a lot of people in the San Fernando Valley. There wasn't a lot of water and it was a, a lot of sand, and a lot of desert out there. And I would spend a lot of time wandering around catching animals of various kinds and uh, also observing them. So that started when I was about, uh, I'd say 10, uh, 9, 10. And that continued. Uh, my father would take us hunting uh, out near Palmdale and other places in Southern California. And I had lots of opportunity to look at animals. Uh-huh. So then I, when I went to UCLA, I got a job there and pretty soon, um, for pay. Uh, I went out and collected animals and uh, spent time photographing animals. What kind of job was it? What kind of animals were you collecting? Well, it was as a research assistant, a general kind of job. And I did everything from, um, let's say, uh, evaluate the osteology collection in the ichthyology department to uh, spending time in the field in Mexico, uh, collecting, you know, whatever animals was being required. There's certain kangaroo rats. People were studying the vision in kangaroo rats at the time. So I would be collecting kangaroo rats. Uh, I would also have uh, jobs collecting parasites. I'd go to slaughterhouses and collect parasites, which was kind of an ugly job. Huh? But, uh, how no. do you how do you how do you collect a parasite from a slaughterhouse? Uh, well, with gloves, certainly. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, it's uh, you know there's intestinal parasites uh, and uh, uh-huh. it's uh, you really don't want me to describe this. I suspect. <laughs> so you it almost sounds like you started off as you know you say collecting, but almost as a kind of hunter of of animals, not hunting to kill, but hunting to to research. Well, yeah, but it was usually assigned to me. I, mm-hmm. I went out and did it. Now, I also collected rattlesnakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was for the Department of, uh, they had a medical center, of course. At, UCLA. Now, at this time, were you tuned into how animals were trained? Or No, I was not a trainer. And my idea of a trainer was a guy with a whip, a chair, and a gun in a lion cage. That's that's a trainer. That's interesting. Uh, I have I have my own. I think I had my own juvenile ideas of what a trainer was, different from that. But it's funny that you have your own sort of cartoon image that you remember. Yeah. Well, I, I we had been to see. Ever heard of the name Frank Buck? No. Frank Buck. That's absolutely amazing. Uh, Frank Buck made movies. And uh, he was an animal trainer, uh, Clyde Beatty Circus. And, um, you know, I saw him training uh, uh, lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. Okay. <laughs> so, and it didn't, uh, you weren't, you didn't think this is what I want to do when I grow up. Oh, I, I didn't want to do that, that uh-huh. sort of thing. Um, 
But uh, while I was doing all of this collecting in the field, I ended up training coyotes in the field. I trained them to go to certain places, certain fields. There were uh, fields with lots of rabbits in and there were three locations, alfalfa fields, where there were rabbits. And uh, the coyotes would come out at night and they would go to one of the fields. Well, I decided I was gonna have them go to the field that I wanted them to go to. Uh, but this still was not training. Uh, in my head, this was not training. I was, uh, I was changing behavior. Yeah, but and not creating antecedent arrangements, we might say. Yes, that. indeed. It's, um, well, it was based on consequences, mm -hmm. of course. If they went the way I wanted to, they found a dead rabbit and they didn't have to change rabbits. They found one. Ah, okay. Yeah. So, so anyway, um, it's a very simple sort of thing. I used strips of cloth and dead rabbits. Uh, it was really simple. Now, I did read about the Breelands at the time and I did read about Skinner. Uh, I did some reading. So how did, how did that come about that you were reading about them? Well, because I wanted to do this changing of behavior and I started ah. looking up, you know, how does one change behavior efficiently? Uh -huh. So I stumbled onto Skinner and then from Skinner, I got to the Breelands and, uh, and, and other people, but uh, uh -huh. those two stick out in my mind. And, uh, and then you started working with dolphins. Is that right? Well, that, that happened after a while. I had a military stint to do, and I did that while I was at UCLA. I was in a program there. And uh, then in uh, 1961, when I uh, got out of, uh, actually 1960, got uh, out of active duty, that I, uh, <laughs> I became a biochemist. Again, right back at the UCLA Medical Center. It's... No, I'm sorry, in the military, were you working with animals? No. Okay. No, no. I so, was in the 525 Military Intelligence Group. <laughs> you're working with human animals. Uh, yeah, you can say that. So back at UCLA? Uh, yeah, and essentially I took a week off when I got out of the service, and then I went to the employment agency and uh, they immediately pulled up a card that says they needed a biochemist at UCLA. So I found myself right back at UCLA where I was quite familiar. So. And is that is that where your professional animal training began then? No, no, <laughs> I, I, I did chromatography. Okay. Uh, thin film and paper chromatography, um, two-dimensional, three-dimensional. Uh, I did bioassay. I did a lot of things while I was there at the, the department. Uh, but um, I got tired of that. Um, so I moved on to something else. But while I was at UCLA, there was a bulletin on the bulletin board from the Defense Department. And it advertised a... Um, biology position, uh, the director of training for the U.S. Navy Dolphin Program. Now, they didn't have a program, really, but they were going to have one. So they were advertising for a director of training. I'd never trained a dolphin before in my life. Um, so I, I submitted an application, but nothing happened for months and months and months and months. So I got tired of doing this sort of thing, uh, being indoors. I did not like indoor work. So um, I applied for California Fish and Game. Now I had already worked with California Fish and Game a lot while I was at UCLA. I knew the people there very well. So I had no problem at all getting a job there. But after a few months, I got a uh, call from the Defense Department, uh, from the Naval Ordnance Test Station, Pasadena, and they wanted me to come in for an interview. This was for that Navy job. Okay. And well, okay, sure, why not? Now, were, were, um, did, were you aware of what they wanted to train dolphins to absolutely do? Absolutely not, and they didn't either. <laughs> so, so anyway. Okay. That, that is a totally another story. But uh, I went in for the interview. Uh -huh. 
and uh, again, this was in Pasadena. And then I ended up uh, going out to sea with Cal Fishing Game, and I was up uh, near Alaska, of all places. And I got a call uh, saying that, uh, or asking if I could report in two weeks uh, because I had been hired. And uh, of course, this just blew me away. I'd never trained a dolphin before in my entire life. So how I was selected for that job, I can only speculate. Well, very few people had trained dolphins up until that point. <laughs> well, there were quite a few dolphin mm -hmm. trainers. There was a fair number of ocean area around in 1962. Mm -hmm. uh, as a matter of fact, there were probably more then than there are now because mm -hmm. we had no Marine Mammal Protection Act and you could mm -hmm. keep a dolphin in a bathtub if you wanted to. And of course, now the restrictions are, are quite uh, stringent in order to... Uh, uh, keep them the environment had to be in a certain way so well i have to anyway. admit the, the 10 year old inside me likes the idea of having a dolphin in my bathtub but okay <laughs> all right well, they have some uh, they have some pretty small dolphins um so you got there to train dolphins you'd never trained dolphins is is this where you started actually learning about um well conditioning? yes it was by happenstance my good luck that Keller and Marion Breland were hired as the chief behavioral scientists for the marine mammal program. Uh, uh -huh. So I got to really meet the Brelands. Who you had uh, read about. And, read about. Mm -hmm. and what had you read? Because I mean, I know even today, there's, there's not as much information as there perhaps should be out there about them. So I'm interested uh, what you knew. Well, I knew that they trained animals. Mm -hmm. uh, I had read newspaper articles, magazine articles. I had read, uh, uh, of course, their papers. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're correct. There really is not a lot out there, but you can find it if you look for it. Okay. Uh, and I know, I know their work had been featured in Life magazine. Had that already happened then? Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. that, that was in the 50s. Okay. So anyway, uh, I reported to Point Magoo. Well, actually, I reported first at uh, Naval Ordnance Test Station, China Lake. Now, if anybody knows about China Lake, there is no lake. There's no water anywhere around. It's in the middle of the Mojave Desert. Okay. But uh, that was the headquarters for the U.S. Navy Marine Mammal Program. So you arrived there. There was no lake. No, it's out in the middle, middle of the desert. I knew where it was. Uh -huh. I mean, I'd been out there before. So uh, actually, it's right near Edwards Air Force Base. And uh, as a member of the Pacific Rocket Society, while I was at UCLA, I shot off rockets at, uh, at uh, near Edwards. Okay. So anyway, um, I report there. And then I reported to the actual duty station which was at Point Magoo, California, just north of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where the project took place. So, yeah. and you know, that's how we got into the dolphin program. So, so that's when you met um, the Breelands, the Breelands uh, for, for people who are not familiar with their work, this would be a good place. Maybe you can talk about what they were, what they were doing at that time. Uh, Keller and Marion were both graduate students of uh, Fred Skinner, B.F. Skinner. Mm -hmm. And um, Marion was uh, uh, his student first, and then later Keller came along. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Skinner was uh, the person who started operant condition. He was the one who... I'm going to say discovered. He didn't create so many people said he created operant conditioning. Operant conditioning was already there. It's just a matter of he described it in the laboratory. Uh -huh. This was in Minnesota. This is the University of Minnesota. They're in Minneapolis. And the uh, Breedlands had been students and they got involved in this project Pelican, which was the training of pigeons to guide bombs. And without going into all sorts of detail, it worked extremely well. Uh, 
1943, it began in 42, April of 42. Uh, by October, November of 42, they were already had all the equipment built and they were training pigeons to guide bombs by 1943. They were in tall towers actually guiding bombs uh, that were on these strings, uh, but guided by this, uh, by the pecks of the pigeons. They were looking at an object, uh, a screen. Uh, it's described on the internet. So yeah. if anyone's interested. Well, and it seems like up. that was kind of the first uh, practical um, application of uh, the kind of work Skinner up to that point was doing in his lab. Exactly. Would you say yeah. that's correct? Yeah, uh, and I, I really want to emphasize that uh, people today don't appreciate what they did in an extremely short period of time. Um, uh, I, I would say most trainers today do not really understand the technology they are trying to apply. And it's when you apply the technology right that things move fast. Uh, they are uncomplicated because you break behavior down into little pieces. People today uh, just don't seem to appreciate what Skinner and the Brelands and others did way back when because they were not trying to be complicated. They were not trying to impress anybody. They were creating something. They were doing something and they did it very quickly. If you stop and think of everything they had to do, all the equipment they had to build, uh, just develop the technology. Uh, but it, it all took place in a period of about a year and a half to two years. Mm -hmm. So uh, anyway, the Breland said, this is so good, we're gonna make a business out of it. They made the next jump. Mm -hmm. So it's the Breelands who really came out of the laboratory um, uh, with the technology. Now, Skinner did this project with the pigeons, mm -hmm. uh, that's, but it, it pretty well stayed in the laboratory because the military did not trust pigeons to guide much of anything. Yeah. Uh, but the Breelands said, this works. Which is too and, bad because instead they, <laughs> instead they used the bomb. Uh, yeah, well, they did what they had to do to stop the door. Yeah. So they, they went on and started Animal Behavior Enterprises, which... Um, in 1943, they began Animal Behavior Enterprises. In 1946, they brought it out and started to really do something. Uh, by 1947, they were earning money doing it. And yeah. it went on from there. Uh, so, so interesting. So they were brought on then um, to work with you mm -hmm. and the dolphins then. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, so was this your kind of aha moment of, oh, this is how operant conditioning works? Well, well yeah, uh, that they introduced me to the, uh, let's say, systematic use of operant conditioning. Now, I had been using it kind of. I mean, in, in a haphazard sort of way, uh -huh. but they taught me about precision. Now I was already used to precision. My father was a precision machinist. I was operating a lathe when I was age nine. Uh -huh. uh, I could, by the age 10 to 12, I could operate virtually any machine in a machine shop. Uh -huh. So I was used to precision. My, my father demanded precision. Uh, but precision and training animals, that was um, a whole different uh, kettle of fish, as they uh -huh, say. Uh -huh. And I understand that um, Karen Pryor, when she began training dolphins, which I believe was also in the, uh, I guess, the, the mid-60s, she was, uh, she also went into it knowing nothing and um, got her hands on a guide written by Keller Breland. Um, yeah, yeah the, the Brelands had trained, the, they were the first to systematically use operant conditioning with dolphins and they wrote a manual and that manual became 
all over the industry. Um, and as I described earlier, there were a lot of dolphin facilities uh -huh. by 1960. There were a lot of them. Uh, but when the Brelands were doing it uh, in 1954, 55, that uh, there were few. They uh -huh, were just uh -huh. in the throes of being built at that time. And uh, this manual of theirs, as I say, was distributed and it it caught on like wildfire. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let's first talk a little bit more about ABE. So you did you go straight to work for ABE? And also maybe you can explain a little bit of the magic that was happening there and that continued to happen there um, well, to those, to the, to the uninformed. Well, uh, I, I had a project. Uh, my objective was to get a dolphin out at sea. Mm -hmm. And I had to do that first. Uh, so by 1964, I had uh, gotten uh, some dolphins out to sea and doing things, simple things. Right. And actually, I didn't even ask what you ended up training the dolphins to do. Or well, it was essentially just go out and do something. Uh, they could detect things. There's lots of things they could do. The important thing was to get them out. Once they were out, once I had written my report, I waved bye-bye to the Navy and uh, Keller hired me at uh, ABE. Uh, I reported in August of 1965. Now, Keller Breland died in June of 1962. So I reported- 1962. No, no. I reported in August of 1962, I'm sorry, okay. 1962. And Keller died, he hired me in April. Mm -hmm but I didn't report until August. I had to finish some writing and the like at, um, mm -hmm. at Point Magoo. So when I finished that, I headed out to uh, Hot Springs, Arkansas. Now I need to point out, I had been to Hot Springs a lot in the few years between the time that I went to uh, Point Magoo by the time I was hired by the Navy. I traveled to Arkansas quite a few times. So I had worked with the Brelands. I had worked with the trainers there at ABE and they opened my eyes. They were the ones who opened my eyes about the simplicity of training and how rapid it could be. Do you remember a specific like aha moment? Well, my aha moment was training chickens. There's no question about it. Tell me more. Well, it was simply a matter of at Point Magoo, when Breland showed up, Keller showed up, uh, he located some chickens and we trained chickens. And we spent a couple of weeks training chickens. Uh -huh. And I found that, yes, I had been doing kind of what I should be doing, but there was a precision to it. And if you watch the behavior of the animals, you could get the behavior faster than if you just essentially dictated what you wanted to the animal this is what i want and so you're not paying you're not paying that much attention to the animal you're not getting feedback from the animal and you're not changing your behavior so you working, working with what's being offered as a start yeah mm -hmm. yeah anyway um that was my introduction to it now the advantage i had over everybody else at that time, and maybe uh, an advantage I've had ever since. I have spent years watching animals uh -huh. um, in captivity and in the wild. This, I say, sharpened my eye to the behavior of the animal. Uh -huh. So uh, I made use of this. So I, I, I'm not claiming any special talent or anything like that. It's just that I've got a fairly sharp eye and my reflexes are pretty good, so. Well, you know, I actually did a chicken camp with Parveen Farhoudi. Uh, actually, somewhere here, I have a clicker that says Bailey Farhoudi on it uh, in mm -hmm. 20, 2016. Um, and, uh, but you had been running chicken camp um, 20, 20 years before that, right? Well, uh, the Breland started what uh, you know, the chicken workshops, mm -hmm. uh, 
1947, 1948. The first time they used it was with feed salesmen. Right. Um, and um, this was for General Mills. And the Breelands taught them how to train, how to give animal shows, uh, how to entertain people, if you will. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, they used chickens and mm -hmm. it was fortuitous. They did not realize that they were using the finest model that was out there. Uh, they just picked it. Now, later on, they tried other things, other ways of teaching people, but mm -hmm. they always came back to the chickens. Um, is part of it that chickens are so difficult to manhandle? Or no. what, what do you think makes chickens such a, a good uh, specimen for, for teaching training? Well, have you ever tried to manhandle a lion, a tiger, <laughs> or a bear? No, but it's harder to transport them to, uh, to no, sessions. There, there, there's, there's lots of reasons uh, mm -hmm. that, you know, you have guinea pigs and you have small mammals mm -hmm. of various mm -hmm. types and the like, but they have so much other behavior. They have rats. Uh, again, they have so much other behavior. A chicken's behavior is really quite limited. Ah. There's not a lot that chickens can yeah. do ah, okay what they do they do extremely well but what they really do well is pick up on their environment they change mm -hmm. their behavior rapidly and that's what you're looking for isn't it interesting that's probably part of the reasons why there's so many chickens in the world right? yeah well they're they're omnivores they can uh -huh. eat anything uh-huh and they extremely respond. adaptable yeah they they adapt to virtually anything and they do it quickly uh -huh. that that little brain is adaptable and so if you do mm. something wrong, they will adapt to that wrong thing very fast. Interesting. And, and, and you can see the change of behavior occurring rapidly. Uh, and if you're observant, you say, oh, that's not where I want to go. I'm going to change my behavior. But I'm mm -hmm. afraid that most trainers don't change their behavior. They already have their idea of how they're going to train that mm -hmm. chicken, regardless of the behavior of the chicken. So you'd say and flexibility is is part of part Adapt of the adaptability adaptability on the part of the trainer is important and it's taught in the chicken workshops well for me something that was a real aha moment as i learned about animal training was this i was realizing that adaptability uh that, that your ability to learn and adapt to your environment relates to your ability to learn period and that animals, you don't necessarily need to have a trainer in place that animals are learning from their environment all the time, adapting to their environment all the time. And the, the better learners are the ones who are surviving in, in more and more environments. Yeah, um, yeah, well, nature's created some pretty smart animals out there. Yeah. Uh, but they're smart in their own environment. And uh, what we do in the chicken workshops, of course, is we create an artificial environment. And uh, in many ways, it's quite sterile. In other ways, it's quite rich. There's lots going on in a chicken workshop. All you have to do is look around you and you see all these other chickens on the table. Uh -huh. You hear all those clicks going on. You see all <laughs> these people dancing around doing all sorts of things they probably shouldn't be doing. So. I'd like to talk to you about the clicker, but first I just wanted to take a step backwards. And for people who don't know what ABE was doing, could you just explain briefly um, some of the sort of non-Skinner box, Skinner box uh, displays and that kind of thing that, that you guys ended up well, doing? Well, first off, ABE was definitely the first commercial enterprise using Skinner's technology. Okay. There's just no question about it. The Breedlands were the first practitioners of Skinner's technology. I've mm -hmm. never found anyone even close to, to the uh, Breelands on doing this. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Breelands had the idea that they could mass produce behavior. Uh, if they controlled the contingencies, that they controlled the environmental conditions, if they prepared the animal, if they adapted the animal to what they were going to experience out there, they could produce hundreds of animals. Well, they did just that. Uh -huh. And they began to automate more and more. They developed feeders. Uh, they developed the, the means to mass produce behavior. Now, Skinner gave them the idea. And the Breelands were always 
They were the first ones to say the ideas, the basic idea of doing this came from Skinner. But the actual application that came from the Breelands. No, mm -hmm. there's again, I know of no one for 10, 15 years that uh, were near the Breelands in, in doing this. Absolutely. And so they so, were teaching chickens to dance and play tic-tac-toe and yeah, and so uh, many other species as well. Right? Yeah, they, they had chickens, rabbits, and ducks that, that did the automated acts. And later on, they extended it to pigs and goats and sheep and others. Uh, but those were usually hand-trained and, and used in uh, shows on stage where you have a handler up there because... Uh -huh. Well, they were pretty big to put in a box, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but uh, they were famous for these automated acts that were highly reliable. They sent them all over the United States, Canada. Later on, uh, we sent them all over the world. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Tic-tac-toe, uh, <clears throat> that was my development. Mm -hmm. uh, that came out in 1973, 74. That um, we had tic-tac-toe units in, in all around the United States, Canada, Africa, uh, gee, Australia, just Europe, all over. They were just I th yeah. I think I mentioned to you, I grew up with I grew up with one that I was amazed by, and I think it never never occurred to me that there <laughs> that this could have uh, that that this was uh, something that I would become so interested in later on mm -hmm. um, where, where was that i'm curious it was location. it was an arcade in chinatown in manhattan ah chinatown fair mm -hmm. mott street amusement which i think yes, is indeed. the one that calvin trillin then wrote about in the yes New indeed yeah. yeah we we met calvin a couple of times he came mm -hmm. out to visit us a couple of times my my mom wants to know how she she asked me to ask you how the chicken always won what was the secret or can the you not share? secret the secret <laughs> put that in quotes, is a perfect game of tic-tac-toe is always a tie. Oh, okay. That's so, the secret. It's always a tie. It's nothing else other than a tie. So if you lose to bird brain, you made a mistake. <laughs> so the chicken was just pushing a button that would then signal the next, uh, the next X or O coming up. It wasn't the chicken was making a decision about which X or O to push is that right we did give the chicken a little help it is a chicken yeah after all <laughs> well in my five-day workshop though i was pretty impressed i mean obviously i'd come into it having done some training but i think someone who hadn't done any training still would have been able to in five days do what i did which was um you know i taught a chicken to differentiate uh a yellow dot from a red and a blue dot i think it was and shapes mm -hmm. um yeah, but the but but afterwards what did you do after you taught the discrimination, what did you do? Well, I, I think what you're getting at, which was so interesting, was like the, the one of the last exercises. And it's a five-week program. I only did the first week. I would have gladly done the five weeks if it was offered again, but um, was switch, right? So we, we it's taught- It's called a stimulus reversal. So right away- That was the, that was yeah. the class. Yeah. All that stuff that you did before was in preparation for that. Yeah, yeah. So stimulus reversal. Suddenly saying, okay, now we're going to, you've, you've been touching the yellow dot all week. Now we're going to do the blue dot. Um, it was, it was mind blowing. And I learned so much about, um, about extinction and about the importance of timing because, you know, yeah. that moment that the, that the chicken's pecking is very, very quick. You, which you, you learned about yourself is what you did. <laughs> I did. And I learned I, I freaking love training chickens. So I wish I wish the programs were, were being offered more. Um, I, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the clicker. So I, I know that um, or I believe that they were the 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 first that Keller and Marion were the first to use a clicker. Is that right? Well, well, they yeah, they were the first to use the clicker. They had to hand make them because you couldn't buy a clicker. Then uh, all the clickers that were being commercially produced were being produced for the military. Right. And then the military, they used them to indicate where to shoot. Is that right? Well, they were it, it was a signaling device. Mm -hmm. It uh, was recognition. You you know, you're it's in the dark and you click it once and somebody else is supposed to click it twice and things like right. that. OK. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the point was, is they were the ones, the Breelands were the one to bring to the fore the conditioned reinforcer. 
It's not that Skinner didn't know about the condition reinforcer and he didn't use it, but it was the Breelands who said, this is a major tool for getting animals to do things quickly and especially at some distance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so they were the ones who really developed to a high level of performance, a conditioned reinforcer. I know we have to wrap up. Oh, and and they, they have a name for it. Um, um, the bridging stimulus? The, the bridging stimulus, mm-hmm. uh, which us dolphin trainers changed to bridge. Okay. And I know that uh, Keller did not like that very much because it was not precise, but that's what we <laughs> did is we call it a bridge. Uh, one other question I wanted to ask you, and, and you know, thank you so much for your time. But in, in the film, which we're going to be doing another screening of uh, in a couple of weeks, as you know, um, you mentioned several times that, uh, and, and I'm paraphrasing, but something like society uh, wasn't ready for this kind of training, you know, in the talk about um, how Marion and Keller and later you tried to bring this to the world of uh, dogs, for example, and it didn't really catch on. I'm curious if you think the world is ready now, and uh, if not, maybe why? Well, the problem is, is that the, the, the practitioners today complicate the issue. Uh, you mean that? In the old days, the reason that it wasn't accepted at first is that the Breathings were threatening essentially um, the, the working lives of people who were out there who were using coercion as their primary means of training dogs. They were trying to introduce the idea of using reinforcement. Uh, a, a given reinforcer, whether it's food or social mm-hmm. reinforcement or whatever, uh, they were trying to introduce this idea, which is totally contrary to the idea at the time, which is the animal was supposed to do what you wanted. And if not, you provided a punishment mm-hmm. to this animal. Uh, that was accepted. That was the way to do things with the vast majority of trainers out there. I won't say 100%, but the vast majority. And they were in a position of power. Uh, There was no mass media at the time. Television was just coming in. And uh, the only people involved in spreading ideas about animal training were the dog food companies, Quaker Mm -hmm. Oats, Purina, companies like that. And they all had advisory committees. And when the Breelands tried to put their ideas before these advisory groups, of course, this was the, all of the trainers' life's blood, what they had been doing. They did not know about reinforcement. They knew about coercion, and that's what they used. And they killed the Breelands' ideas. They did mm. not allow them to be spread. Which is pretty amazing to me because I would think, you know, you had these animal shows happening in a way that they're not happening now. I mean, I guess you, we have YouTube now, but we don't have tic-tac-toe playing chickens the way we used to. And, and you know, your IQ Zoo, which is talked about in the film, et cetera, et cetera. You would think that this would have um, led people to say, how are these animals being trained? Um, it scared the professionals. Okay. Do you think that's changing? Yeah, I, I think it's changing, but why in the hell is it taking so long? Yeah, that's what I want to know. Why? Why? Uh, Well, because if you want to get a dog's uh, attention in the course of a a chain of behaviors, what can you best do? You can startle the animal. You can scare the animal to stop the behavior. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you deliver a piece of food, that takes a little while. Mm -hmm. The point is, is that everyone, I think virtually everyone knows that if you want to quickly get a dog's attention, do something that the dog doesn't like, and that will get the dog's attention right away. Uh Okay, well, that is an easy way to base your training because you get supposed instant results. What you don't want to have happen is all of the, uh, uh, the, other things that happen when you startle or you the fallout, the fallout, yeah, essentially the fallout, if mm-hmm. you will. And 
that's what the trainers were not addressing at the time. Now, remember, this is the life's blood of those people. They, mm -hmm. they earn their livings that way. And operant conditioning, the use of reinforcement in operant conditioning, uh, was a threat to their training. Mm -hmm. You were telling everyone that what they were doing was not the best way to do it. And today, though, there, there still are a lot of trainers, I mean, certainly on, on TV and on the internet, uh, I feel like the if you don't know what to look for as a dog owner looking for training, you're very likely to end up with someone who's going to put a shot collar on your dog or tell you that you need to train your dog with your powerful energy. Sure. Uh, but, uh, all you have to do is look at the yellow pages, what's left of the yellow pages in dog training, and just look at the ads and you'll see that there is still a lot of, quote, command, end quote, uh, training mm -hmm. going on when you and, when you first saw caesar milan for example which i'm guessing you've seen um were you were you, did you think oh i thought we'd, we'd come past this no um uh, but uh you know i caesar milan is just a phenomenon like so many others mm -hmm. in, in the past I, mm -hmm. uh now if you look at caesar milan look at his first season and look at his last season um, and you will see a dramatic difference in Caesar Milan's behavior. Uh -huh. You will see that he has changed his behavior. Uh -huh. Now, uh, I can't go into the story. There's just uh, really not enough time, but in the most, I think it's the most recent book now, you will find me mentioned because uh -huh. I got involved in that. I don't know if you've read his, but Caesar rules or something. I, I know the book you're talking about. Yes. And I will go back and take a look at that. Yeah. Um, so uh, would I, can, we, can we sum it up saying that you're hopeful that maybe now is the time or are you still feeling like the, oh, world, isn't, the world isn't ready as you look, say in look, the film? Look, the world of training is in the hands of your generation, not mine. I, I'm out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm here. I am a, uh, let's say a voice of the past. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, I voice a little disappointment that is a not a lot further on because the technology, and we haven't talked about the CIA cats or the CIA ravens or anything like that. What they did 50 years ago uh, is, is something that people should look at and say, why can't we do at least this good today, if not better? Uh -huh. Because I have not hid the technology from anyone. I have tried to open what I know to as many people as possible. Uh -huh. And yet people keep trying to change it. They keep trying to um, uh, make it more complicated. Uh -huh. They keep trying to make it more complicated. Uh, complicated. Training is simple, but not easy. Uh -huh. It is honestly simple. Uh, those of you out there who are teaching it, Teach it simply. Mm -hmm. Teach it as simple steps, not complicated steps. Um, you know, that's my word to the world. All right. One one final question I promise, and then I'll let you go. I know you need to go. Do you have an all-time, an all-time great success, an animal that you trained that you never thought could have be trained, or or something that you just are extremely proud of that that you could share? Well, well, goodness. Um, what am I most proud of? Well, let's see, I could say uh, I was the first one to work with dolphins at sea, mm -hmm. but uh, I, I guess um, my greatest accomplishments, I guess having three sets of twins and <laughs> uh, uh, marrying uh, Marion Breland, I guess. Those are, uh, well, I was those referring to an, an animal training accomplishment, but, yeah. but I'll take that. And maybe I'll push you further when we do our Q&A in a couple of weeks yeah. on, on that topic. Mm -hmm. I thought you'd maybe talk about a raccoon playing baseball, but. <laughs> no, no, it's, uh, they're, they're all simple. They're all so simple. Interesting. None of it was that complicated. Impressive, it, impressive, but simple and not complicated. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Bob. Really appreciate it. And um, I will see you in a couple of weeks at our next screening, sure. which with with fingers crossed, I say, will include a Q&A. Okay. So, <laughs> so thank right. you so much. And um, I'll be in touch between now and then. 
Okay. Bye bye. Okay. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. And special thanks to Bill and Lizzie of Toast Garden for the amazing theme song. You can find Toast Garden at youtube.com slash toastgarden. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping at storefortheDogs.com. And you can learn more about us at schoolforthedogs.com. You can also connect with other listeners by downloading our brand new app. Just visit schoolforthedogs.com community.